Hello. My name is Tony Angi, and I teach at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I'm here today to talk about third world approaches to international law, or TWAIL, as it is more commonly known among international law scholars. In this presentation, I'll be looking really at three broad issues. The first is the question of what is TWAIL? This is a question I'm often asked. Uh, the second is the question of trying to understand or focusing on what I call the TWAIL tradition and the way this tradition has evolved since the time of the beginning of the United Nations to the present. The third section of my presentation really focuses on some contemporary issues and the broad question of uh, what should the future of TWAIL be and what type of scholarship and what sorts of issues must TWAIL be engaging with. Let me then begin with the question of what is TWAIL. My simple answer to that question would be that TWAIL focuses on two major issues or asks two questions. The first question is how does international law impact the lives of people living in the third world? The second question is how might international law be used to further the interests of these people, these very disadvantaged people living in what might be called the third world. Scholars from very different traditions, both uh, in terms of theory and jurisprudence, um, whatever the other differences that separate them, are united, it seems to me, in focusing on these two questions or addressing these two questions. And it is this that really unites uh, TWAIL scholars, whatever the other differences that might uh, separate them. In considering then uh, the whole question of uh, TWAIL scholarship, I should also say that uh, TWAIL scholars work in many different areas of international law. It could be the history and theory of international law, or it could be the use of force, or it could be international economic law, or international environmental law, or human rights. But again, the two factors uniting these scholars, despite their differences, is their focus on these particular issues. How does international law impact the people of the third world? And how might international law be used to further the interests of people in the third world? Let me now turn to the issue of what might be called the TWAIL tradition. And here, scholars make a distinction between what might be called the first generation of TWAIL scholars and the, and, uh, the uh, changes that took place uh, in the emergence of a second generation of TWAIL scholars who might be called uh, TWAIL II scholars. The first generation of TWAIL scholars, and I would include here the very important and eminent uh, uh, scholars such as uh, Professor Api Anand of India, uh, Professor George Abisab, uh, Professor Mohammed Bejawi, um, uh, Professor T.O. Elias. Uh, in other words, uh, scholars coming from what might be traditionally called the third world. Uh, these were the scholars whose work really provided the foundation for what might be called the Twail One approach. What were the elements of this approach? So these scholars emerged in a context of decolonization. 
it can't be disputed that international law historically has been used by European powers to suppress non-European peoples. And this uh, was the legacy uh, that the scholars of Twail One had to confront. The whole question was, how can international law, which had previously legitimized colonialism, now be used for the purposes of negating the effects of colonialism and also advancing the interests of the previously colonized people. So this was the great challenge that we're facing uh, 12 one scholars um, who emerged and wrote shortly after the creation of the United Nations and the beginning of the whole process of decolonization. The belief of uh, or the approach of these uh, scholars was based on a certain set of assumptions. The first assumption was that the colonial aspects of international law, that is, uh, those aspects of international law that had, for example, justified the conquest of non-European people, could be separated from the body of the larger body of international law. And so the basic idea was there's nothing inherently bad about international law. The important task that awaited international law scholars from all over the world was how to excise the colonial dimension of international law from the rest of international law, which was seen by 12-1 scholars as serving a very important purpose. 12-1 scholars were extraordinarily idealistic in their belief that international law could bring about the massive changes that they believed necessary to create a just world in the context of decolonization. What were some of the doctrines that these scholars focused on? So uh, these scholars focused on uh, the very important issue, for example, of self-determination. The basic argument was uh, international law needed to develop a set of doctrines that would account for the change of colonial states into independent states which were sovereign and which could actually engage in the process of creating international law as sovereign and equal states. So uh, self-determination was promoted uh, by these scholars. Uh, furthermore, these scholars argued uh, very strongly for the principle of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. Uh, they basically understood that political independence was not going to be enough to ensure the well-being of third world peoples. In addition to political independence, what was necessary was economic self-determination. And so for these purposes, these scholars focused on ideas of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. In addition, uh, these scholars um, focused uh, to a large extent on defending the newly won sovereignty of third world peoples. So there's a huge emphasis on uh, non-intervention and consolidating the third world state. Um, and uh, this was achieved, for example, by arguing that uh, it was important to develop doctrines that would prevent secession and other such threats to the third world state. Many of these principles were articulated at the Bandung Conference, which was held in 1955 in Indonesia. And at this conference, the states of the third world uh, that were gathered there focused on important concepts such as 
mutual respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. They emphasize the significance of mutual non-aggression and non-interference in the interna internal affairs of states. And they also focused on ideas of equality and mutual benefit. Uh, in these circumstances, uh, really, the uh, authors um, or the lawyers uh, were arguing for a system in which there would be cooperation among states to bring about a new system of international affairs, which would give proper recognition to the importance of third world countries and the needs of their people. In terms of bringing about the, these changes, the scholars of this period, as well as the states uh, that were involved in this whole enormous uh, and very ambitious project to change the international system, uh, focused on general assembly resolutions as a means of bringing about change. Now, um, the work of the scholars I have mentioned uh, was accompanied by an enormous uh, political campaign waged by countries of the third world, which had organized themselves into the non-aligned movement. Um, these countries uh, attempted to articulate a number of principles that they wished to be embodied in international law. So for these purposes, these uh, states, the non-aligned movement, um, attempted to use the General Assembly, which was the one international forum in which they had an advantage, to articulate these important principles. So um, the General Assembly, for example, um, uh, passed uh, by resounding numbers the declaration for a new international economic order. And um, uh, it further articulated a charter on the economics rights and duties of states. And these documents embodied many of the principles that I had mentioned in terms of uh, articulating principles of non-intervention, and also are attempting in various ways to change the international economic law that had been created by colonial relations and which, if allowed to continue, would impede third world countries in their efforts to make economic progress. The 1970s uh, was in many ways the period in which these activities were most uh, prominent, and um, uh, it was during this period that the non-aligned movement was particularly active. However, uh, in time, it was uh, demonstrated that uh, these General Assembly resolutions were largely disregarded by powerful states, uh, which argued that they were not in any way bound by General Assembly resolutions. So, of course, General Assembly resolutions are not in themselves legally binding. And many of the uh, developed countries argued that uh, they could not be bound by these new principles uh, unless they consented to them. And, of course, the developed countries, the rich countries, had no particular interest in changing a system of economic law which had operated uh, to its benefit. So if we are to assess uh, these attempts by developing countries, uh, it must be said that uh, it's unclear as to how much was actually achieved uh, in terms of bringing about legal change. Certainly, there was a very intense and uh, debate that took place about the character of international law at the time. But in terms of bringing about significant legal change, it is doubtful as to whether 
very much of what the Third World attempted to achieve uh, had in fact been achieved. At the same time, another reason why the uh, campaign of the Third World uh, was uh, somewhat unsuccessful had to do with changes taking place in the international economic system uh, that prevailed at the time. So in the early era of decolonization, uh, many third world states adopted socialist policies in the hope that uh, these policies would actually cater and deal with the very important uh, interests and uh, welfare of third world peoples. The problem, however, was that in uh, many of the countries in which the socialist experiment took place, uh, it was found that this experiment was not very successful. So there was a general feeling that uh, socialism had failed as uh, a possible alternative uh, to uh, other uh, capitalist approaches to development. In addition to that, the problem that uh, many third world countries encountered was the fact that imperial rule was replaced by dictatorial rule. And by this I mean that in many third world countries following decolonization, what happened was that many of the nationalist leaders themselves uh, became dictatorial and authoritarian. And uh, as a result of this, uh, the people of the third world found that their resources were now being plundered, not by colonial powers, but by their dictatorial leaders. And this, of course, uh, had a huge significance for the welfare of people living in the third world. So I have traced the history of the Twail tradition roughly to the 1970s. By the time we come to the 1980s and 1990s, much of that tradition um, appeared to have been lost. And this was a period in which many developing countries felt a deep disillusion with international law and what it could provide third world peoples. A number of reasons for this uh, might be identified. So I have already mentioned uh, the failure of socialism. And um, furthermore, none of the important uh, ambitions of the new international economic order had uh, really been in any way made a reality. In addition to this, uh, by the time we come to 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, it seemed that a new era was dawning, and this might be called uh, the era of globalization. And during this time, some very important arguments were made uh, by scholars such as uh, Professor Francis uh, Fukuyama to the effect that we had now arrived at the end of history. And by this, Fukuyama really meant that we had arrived at a realization that the liberal, democratic, market-oriented state was the ideal model of human society. And all that remained was for other societies which had not themselves adopted such a model to actually attempt to become liberal, democratic, market-oriented states. So this was the future that was presented to all developing countries. In addition to this, uh, it was clear by now that the post-colonial state was itself a source of massive violence and that it, the post-colonial state was responsible for causing immense suffering to the people in the third world. So here we can think of 
minorities and indig indigenous people and uh, women among various other groups who were affected by the violent activities of the post-colonial state. And the irony was that in many cases, these post-colonial states were led by dictatorial leaders who themselves adopted very colonial technologies and techniques in actually furthering their own rule. So there were some post-colonial leaders, for example, who engaged in their own version of the classical colonial technique of divide and rule because many post-colonial societies were multi-ethnic in character. And these leaders would insistently play what might be called the ethnic card or the race card in order to enhance their own popularity and, in effect, uh, oppress uh, minorities and in indigenous people who are presented as the enemies of the state. So, as a result of this, um, we find that the post-colonial state itself uh, became a source of violence. And um, there were further distortions that had taken place during the 1970s and 1980s as a result of the Cold War, when many of these dictatorial leaders were, in fact, supported by one or other party in the Cold War because they actually enabled that party to further its own interests. By the time we come to the 1990s then, we uh, uh, find ourselves in a situation where all the major initiatives that were taken in the international arena were initiatives that originated with the West. So if we think of what happened in the 1990s, uh, we can uh, focus, for example, on the creation of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, in 1994. Uh, we can think of the whole project of actually promoting democratic governance in uh, states that were characterized uh, as being uh, improperly or badly governed. Uh, at the same time, we can point to uh, the massive violence that took place in Rwanda, for instance, leading to the deaths of thousands of people. And this uh, led to a whole set of ideas about uh, third world states and the manner in which they could become failed states that would require inter international intervention. And in a way, uh, that would require rule by international administration or some sort of international body. So in all these different ways, um, the third world uh, failed really to actually play a major role in setting the international agenda. The, rather, it was the case where all these rules, which had uh, a considerable impact on people living in developing countries were rules that they had very little role in formulating for themselves. So let me now, given this historical context, talk a little bit about what might be called TWAIL2 or um, uh, the TWAIL2 um, approach uh, to uh, questions of international law. Uh, TWAIL2 scholars were inspired by the Twelve One scholars, um, whom, they, whom they saw as being the pioneers of the Twelve tradition. What Twelve Two scholars tried to do was to understand how the concerns of Twelve One scholars and how their approaches to international law could actually, actually be addressed, how those concerns could be addressed and furthered in this new context that was presented by the 1990s.
So what were some of the concerns of Trail 2 scholars? Trail 2 scholars were inspired by the very important work done by Trail 1 scholars, and yet they had a somewhat different emphasis. So the Trail 1 scholars focused very understandably on the importance of protecting the sovereignty of the third world state. And furthermore, these scholars focused on the importance of development because development was the major concern, the major preoccupation of third world states, which believed that if they could only achieve development, then uh, this would be crucial. Uh, this was a means of enhancing and ensuring the welfare of the people uh, living in their own states. Over time, however, it became clear that for the reasons I mentioned, the post-colonial state itself was a source of immense violence. And furthermore, much of this violence was conducted precisely in the name of development. And it was especially the poorer and more disadvantaged people living in the third world who were affected very adversely by large development projects that were ostensibly taking place in the interests of the public, uh, but um, which did not always, in fact, ensure the well-being of the people living in these states. So Trail 2 scholars were trying to focus more critically on the whole issue of post-colonial sovereignty, understanding that the post-colonial state itself was conducting enormous human rights violations. And these scholars also were intent on understanding how the promise of development could be distorted to result in further suffering for the people who are supposed to be, um, uh, who are supposed to be protected uh, or whose interests were going to be advanced by development. A further issue that uh, was of great concern to 12 two scholars had to do with globalization because the 1990s was the decade in which uh, globalization intensified and expanded. So we find in this period the World Trade Organization coming into existence. And on the whole, what was important about uh, the WTO was the extent to which it really intruded into the sovereignty of many of the developing countries, especially because the WTO now focused not only on questions of international trade in goods, but also uh, focused on issues such as intellectual property protection and services. So we have the WTO expanding its authority. Uh, we have the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which were very important actors even previously, also expanding their operations in developing countries and bringing about um, and uh, implementing structural adjustment programs in the name of development in a situation where many of those programs uh, seem to have significant um, social impacts on uh, people living in these developing countries where these programs were put into place. Furthermore, we see the emergence of a new regime uh, that uh, had to do with the protection of foreign investment. And uh, it was in this period that bilateral investment treaties became very popular uh, amongst uh, all the countries' intent on attracting foreign direct investment. And as a result of uh, these uh, 
investment regimes, we find a situation where private actors such as corporations actually acquired a, an enormous amount of power. Uh, and um, we find ourselves in a situation where these uh, entities and their interests um, were protected through a number of important legal principles uh, that sometimes had the effect, once more, of operating to the disadvantage of people in the third world. So during this period, um, a lot of important Twail scholarship focused on examining these different regimes, whether they had to do with trade or with uh, foreign investment. Um, and this scholarship tried to analyze uh, the character of these regimes and how these regimes affected uh, the people living in the third world. And this was also a period in which uh, organizations such as the World Bank and uh, uh, in particular uh, focused on uh, expanding an idea of good governance that was directed towards reforming systems of governance that took place in developing countries. Uh, similarly, uh, there were enormous efforts made both by international institutions and by um, various other agencies to promote the rule of law in developing countries. And all this was accompanied by a claim that uh, what was needed uh, was the articulation and implementation of certain important rights such as the right to democratic governance. All these initiatives had a profound impact on uh, what was taking place within third world countries. Now, I should make it clear that uh, good governance and democracy and the rule of law are very important values and uh, institutions that should be protected. But what third world uh, scholars pointed out, what Twail II scholars pointed out, was that many of these programs that were taking place in the name of the rule of law or in the name of good governance, uh, many of these programs did not actually operate in the interests of the people whom they were supposed to protect. So this was a period in which uh, Twail II scholars tried to focus on these different initiatives um, and uh, point to the implications of these initiatives for people living in the third world. A further important issue that was taken up by Twail II scholars had to do with uh, understanding in a different way the history of the relationship between imperialism and international law. And this body of scholarship uh, focused on questioning the conventional history of international law and the way in which that conventional history dealt with the problem or issue of imperialism. The conventional history was based on a number of premises. So the first premise, uh, if it can be put uh, in a somewhat simplified way, was the premise that international law was created in Europe and was then transferred from Europe to the non-European world. So if we uh, take as an example the Peace of Westphalia, uh, the argument is that the Peace of Westphalia perfected modern sovereignty, Westphalian sovereignty in a European context. And then this model of sovereignty was transferred to the non-European world through, of course, the process of imperialism. So that is the first premise, that 
international law is created in the West and then transferred to the non-European world. The second uh, premise uh, that uh, in many ways uh, animates the history and theory of international law is the view that the principal theoretical problem facing international law is the problem of how is it that order is created among equal and sovereign states. And this is a problem that many of the most distinguished scholars in international law have attempted in various ways to address. Now, looking at this problem from the point of view of non-European peoples and states, we encounter a fundamental issue. And the issue is that non-European states were, for a large proportion of their history, regarded as being not sovereign. So in other words, a paradigm or an analytical framework that focuses on the problem of order among sovereign states cannot really account for the different history experienced by non-European states. In the case of non-European states, a different paradigm becomes necessary. And that paradigm is based on the question which is, how is it decided that non-European states are lacking in sovereignty? So rather than seeing sovereignty as being perfected in uh, Europe and then transferred to the non-European world um, uh, in a situation where the model is based on the idea of equal and sovereign states, there's a question of how do we deal with non-European states and the fact that these states were excluded from sovereignty. So in providing an alternative to these ba two basic premises, it could be argued that international law was not perfected in Europe and then transferred to the non-European world, but rather international law was created through the encounter between the European and the non-European world. And in fact, doctrines in relation to sovereignty were created for the specific purpose of excluding the non-European world from being regarded as properly sovereign. In other words, built into sovereignty doctrine is a set of mechanisms or uh, principles that would have the effect of subordinating people or states that did not correspond or lacked the elements or the cultural elements that were regarded as crucial to sovereignty. So in this context, rather than look at the question of order among sovereign states, it might be uh, more useful and more illuminating to focus on the question of cultural difference. In other words, we find ourselves in a situation where European states saw themselves as possessing a particular culture, non-European states possessed a different culture, and the argument is that because their culture was different, uh, they, this culture could be regarded as inferior, and these uh, entities were therefore properly denied sovereignty. So in the, it, this was one way in which the specific history of the non-European world could actually be properly understood. And it could be understood in the context of the broader uh, framework of what might be called the civilizing mission because uh, ever since the beginnings of international law, or the modern beginnings of international law, it could be said that what has driven international law is the whole task of formulating the doctrines that would enable the European world to engage in the occupation and civilizing of non-European peoples. 
So we see then that the distinction between civilized and uncivilized states is crucial to an understanding of the history of international law. So these were some of the analytical techniques uh, that uh, were developed um, and uh, uh, further, uh, you could say, uh, applied by Twale to scholars to try and understand various events that were taking place in the 1980s and 1990s. So just as the international law of the 19th century relied on the distinction between civilized and uncivilized states, so too we find in the 1990s arguments being made to the effect that we should divide up the world into modern states and pre-modern states, or uh, we should uh, divide up the world into liberal states and non-liberal states. And so much of the scholarship or important bodies of scholarship in the 1990s seemed to replicate in various ways the fundamental distinction that was established in much earlier times between civilized and uncivilized states. And once that distinction is established, then the task that the international law and international institutions must address is the question of how can we civilize those uncivilized states or how can we democratize those non-democratic states? Or how, how can we bring the rule of law to those states which are lacking in the rule of law? So in all these different ways, um, what international law then seemed to require was another process of intervening in uh, developing countries. And again, as in the case of classical colonialism, the argument was that such intervention was necessary for the well-being and welfare of the people living in those developing countries. So in these different ways, the history of international law suddenly seemed to acquire a new sort of um, power in terms of illuminating what was happened in the 1990s. Um, and this um, uh, was uh, one aspect of 12-2 scholarship that was also included amongst the different um, attempts by 12-2 scholars to address the concerns of the 1990s onwards. Let me now conclude uh, this presentation by addressing the question of where are we now and what is the future for Twale scholarship. So let me just uh, present a few ideas in that regard. Firstly, it is clear that uh, the, ter the term third world is far more complicated uh, than it was in the 1970s, which was in many ways the heyday of the third world. In the 1970s, um, when reference was made to the third world, uh, reference was made to a group of countries that were relatively united and which were uh, very focused on achieving particular goals in relation to the restructuring of the international order. Today, of course, uh, the term third world seems uh, really redundant um, and uh, far too simplistic because uh, we are now in a situation where countries that were once regarded as developing are now themselves extremely rich. Uh, and so uh, many people, uh, many scholars focus on the emergence of the so-called BRICS, uh, the emergence of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And uh, we are now in a situation in which uh, the economies of many of these countries play a crucial role in uh, global affairs generally. So we need, in other words, to reconsider what is meant uh, by the third world. And it should also be pointed out uh, in this regard that it was precisely the intention of 12 to 
trail to scholars to focus not so much on third world states, but on third world peoples. And so in this regard, really, the term third world peoples uh, could be said to stand almost uh, symbolically for peoples who are the most disadvantaged in the current global order. In relation to the emergence of the so-called BRICS, a further set of questions uh, arise. And uh, these questions have to do with the issue of what is the program of the BRICS? Uh, do they have a particular vision of a different type of international order? Or are they themselves now, because they feel themselves to be uh, beneficiaries of this international system, are they content uh, to continue with the system as it now exists? Because it is a system in which they are now important actors. So we uh, confront here a very interesting paradox because it seems that in the 1970s, developing countries did not have very much power, but they had a very clear agenda, and that agenda was defeated. We are now in a situation where some of those developing countries are globally powerful entities. But the question remains of what is the agenda of these countries? Uh, is it going to be a systematic agenda or is it something that uh, they would try to pursue unilaterally? So these are some of the questions that emerge in relation to changes that have taken place in the context of the third world itself. A further suggestion is that as a result of these changes, we might focus not so much on rich countries and poor countries, but on rich people and poor people. Because another deficiency of the term third world is that it obscures the fact that there are very rich people living in poor countries. And equally, there are very poor people living in rich countries. And so we need a set of analytical tools, uh, some kind of, of a theoretical framework that would enable us to understand this complex reality. Uh, the reality of what is it about the international system that might lead to a systematic disempowerment experienced by certain people all around the world. In other words, trying to focus on what is it that unites the poorer people globally and not just the poor people living in the third world. So um, we, this really requires us to understand how global governance works and what the role might be of international institutions and international laws and rules in bringing about a system of global governance that would provide fairly for all people. A further set of issues um, that we might think about in relation to the question of who should we consider to be third world people is the condition of people who are the most disadvantaged. And here we can think about people such as indigenous people. We can think of women who have been systematically disempowered. Uh, we can think of refugees and migrant workers. And so once again, the task remains for Twail scholars to understand from the perspective of those people, their particular condition and the operation of international law in relation to their predicament. So in some cases, international law could offer protection as uh, is the case with uh, refugees because the whole idea of the Refugee Convention is to protect people against uh, various forms of persecution. And yet, um, when it comes to uh, people such as refugees and migrant workers, it seems that this international framework is either inadequate or problematic or is being in various ways impeded by various other forces that need to be understood and addressed. 
In terms of the whole question of uh, TWAIL as a scholarly project, um, one thing I should emphasize is that TWAIL is an incomplete project. And um, I'm quite often asked what the TWAIL approach to question, a particular question might be. And quite often my response is that TWAIL is not a fixed approach. I would uh, rather think of TWAIL as being animated by a set of concerns um, to understand the well-being or the, concern, the uh, situation of people living in the third world or more broadly disadvantaged people. So TWAIL is a set of concerns and is also a set of analytical tools. And I hope I've given you some sense of what these analytical tools might be. And so in these circumstances, the question is employing those an analytical tools to try and understand the predicament um, of a particular group of people or to understand the operation of a particular legal doctrine in these types of uh, situations. And so it is in that regard that I see TWAIL as being an incomplete project because each application of these tools to a particular uh, situation reveals in many cases that the tools are inadequate. We need better tools to be continuously refined and developed to understand these new circumstances. So I see TWAIL, twail in that regard, not as being a, a fixed approach, but rather as being uh, something like a set of concerns that hopefully will generate the analytical tools that will enable us to understand the condition of the most disadvantaged people uh, that we find uh, globally. Another comment I would uh, like to make here is the comment about uh, how the classical problem of imperialism is to be dealt with. Because uh, Twail to scholars really uh, focused in many respects on the argument that colonialism has been reproduced even, even in a world that supposedly has achieved decolonization. So Twail one scholars believed that the acquisition of sovereignty by colonial territories or colonial states would lead to the end of colonization. And it certainly did, in as much as formal colonialism came to an end with decolonization. And decolonization was one of the great uh, projects of the United Nations itself. However, what many 12-1 uh, scholars and 12-2 scholars understand is the situation where colonialism in a certain way, has been reproduced in a new setting with a new set of tools. Now the question is, how can that imperialism be resisted? How can that imperialism be contested? And one of the classical ways in which third world states have attempted to resist this imperialism is through what might be called authoritarian nationalism. So the argument is something to the effect that in order to deal with imperialism, we need to have strong leaders um, and these strong leaders need to have uh, the powers necessary to resist imperialism. And there might be some truth to that argument, but equally it is the case that many of these strong leaders might in their own way be actually causing immense harm to their own people. So much of this argument is couched as an argument that takes place in terms of having to choose between imperialism on one hand or a strong third world state on the other. And the strong third world state could also uh, require uh, these uh, very powerful leaders which often rely on a nationalist rhetoric to justify their own uh, stand. Twail resists both of these alternatives. 
because the basic argument is that third world people suffer both as a result of imperialism and also as a result of third world dictatorship. And so the question is to try and formulate a vision that would actually uh, repudiate both these alternatives and find some other path to actually assisting and making good on the promise, promise of international law to provide justice to these uh, disadvantaged people. Finally, um, in terms of the future of trail, um, I have mentioned that we have a situation where uh, the first generation of uh, trail scholars um, made a very important contribution to our understanding of international law. And uh, now there is talk of TWAIL too. But what I am looking forward to is the emergence of what might be called roughly TWAIL 3. That is the next generation of scholars who will embark on this project of trying to understand and provide their own insights into the two fundamental questions that I began with. That is, in these changing circumstances, how should we understand the operation of international law and its, the impact of international law and institutions on the most disadvantaged people? And secondly, the question of how can international law be used for the purposes of advancing the interests of these people? And so this continues, uh, whatever the other changes within TWAIL. It seems to me that these two concerns continue to be the common theme that would unite TWAIL 1, TWAIL 2, and the further generations of TWAIL scholars uh, whose work I look forward to uh, encountering in the near future. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.